where are you located? Ohio. Okay. Wait for it to start recording. And assume you're down in Florida. Gainesville, Florida. How's the weather down there? About 55 a high today and, and drizzly. This is, this is how, up here, so. No, I know that. I I used to live in New York City, and I'm glad I'm out of that. <laughs> yeah, jealous. <laughs> All right, well, let's start. Hello, okay. everyone. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Crockcast Podcast. I'm your host, Nate, and today I'm joined by Dr. Elliot R. Jacobson. Dr. Dr. Jacobson, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. So um, let's let's start off a little bit about you. you um, how did you uh, first uh, get into reptiles? And uh, I guess what was a guideline of your career? Well, what really uh, got me into uh, I mean, I started out with insects as real my my in major interest when I was five on five years old on on up and it wasn't until i started seeing reptiles in the wild that i really got into uh into uh working with them but i've kept animals uh just about my entire life and i've had a, a wide range of uh different animals as quote unquote pets uh the era i grew up in was was pretty primitive when you look at nutrition and uh, availability of foods uh, for uh, different species. It's, it's completely night and day uh, the way it is, it is uh, today. And so uh, unfortunately, there was very little information at, in the 50s and 60s uh, on how to care for most of these animals. And then I just progressed as I, as I uh, uh, got older, I started collecting bigger and bigger things. And, um, and probably uh, right around, uh, right near my couple, around 10 years old, I, I really got immersed in reptiles, especially going to the American Museum of Natural History in New York City and going to the Bronx Zoo, uh, the, the reptile department uh, there. And so I think a, a lot of it with insects and reptiles, it's an attraction to something moving and something moving and, and being able to catch it. And that's, that's uh, a, a part of the, the fascination. Uh, then there were other things which, I mean, it always intrigued, say, with snakes about how they, how they move about and, and, and then learning about the complexities of locomotion. And snakes, is, it's incredible biological uh, evolutionary feat. So it's so that attraction for animals, especially reptiles, has re remained with me my whole life. In graduate school, I worked with mud puppies uh, for my uh, PhD, and and then for my masters, I worked with uh, patchno snakes, uh, ribbon snakes, and and uh, diamondback water snakes, looking at um, metabolism at different temperatures. Uh, so I moved into a, a career that with reptiles at a core part of it. But also I knew I had to be broader than that for most jobs, uh, hmm. especially in, in veterinary medicine. 
And the reason I got into veterinary medicine was because my research animals, mud puppies, uh, and many of them got ill and died. And I and I I found out quickly that almost no one knew anything about this. This is in the 1970s, early 1970s. And so I saw it as an opportunity to go into an area that uh, is very underrepresented. Um, and that's how, and I just kept on going because it, it was easier to go straight than to go somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you were, uh, used to be a professor of zoological medicine at the University of Florida, correct? Yes. I arrived in 77 and then retired in 12. So uh, during your course, uh, what was some of the stuff you researched while you're at your time at University of Florida? Well, I have to just uh, first talk just a little bit about research. I mean, research yeah. is this very uh, broad uh, topic uh, that uh, uh, can involve a wide range of, of, uh, of uh, subtopics. It is a word that's very commonly used, and it has different meanings by different people. You know, a strict scientist yeah. uh, sees research and, and laid out in a, in a very uh, uh, sequential way, steps uh, to come up with a hypothesis and to prove or disprove what your hypothesis is. But then research is just used in lay language a lot and has nothing to do with primary research. It's just a word that is thrown out there to, to make people believe you've really studied something. Yeah. And but there are different ways to study and you can get different information depending upon how you 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 use that uh, approach. And um, and so a big part of, of research is knowing your limitations on, on what your what the what your findings actually prove or disprove and how far you can go. And today we see it now every night on TV with COVID. I think yeah. people have learned more about immunization, even though a lot of it is false, but a lot of uh, information about immunization and, and uh, antibody production and uh, different drugs than any other disease I can remember in my lifetime. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's kind of a weird time to be alive. Oh, it is. Well, I'd rather be alive. <laughs> I'd rather than, <laughs> yeah, I, I'll take the living. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the things uh oh I with guess. research? Um, um what with with research, it it um it can be very challenging, especially if you're in a clinical area, which I started out in, but to you you research takes a, a very different mental commitment than doing say clinical work and working on on ill animals and and, and, and cases it's ve it's it's very very different and so in an academic setting like University of Florida where we're going from clinics to research to service and other things uh, it's almost schizophrenic uh, you're just going from one state of mind to another state of mind and with research most of us have to build up some pilot data uh, that you have to somehow put together and the way that most researchers do is they get up startup money from the university that is hiring them if they're hiring them for research 
you might get $250,000 to $400,000 from the department to get your lab going if you have a good history of, of, of grantsmanship. And so for me, when I started out, I had very little data, actually, when I was on training programs. And um, I had data from my PhD, but not anything then original there, you know, thereafter. And so it took me about 10 years to, uh, to build up enough uh, experience and information to, to know what I could do uh, further. Uh, because when we get an animal in with some health issue and, uh, and, and you say, oh, this is really interesting. We, I'd like to study this. Well, maybe there's money available, but maybe not at all. And if, and if there isn't money available, you're not going to get very far. And so part of getting your pilot data together is to be thinking always of, of what is fundable. You know, what, what are the hot topics and how can I take my research in, in, in that direction? So it took me about 10 years uh, to, and a lot of that um, was, um, uh, I, I had a, histo one thing that the university did give me, didn't give me a lot in startup money. I got, and as a, and as a clinician, and then this is 30 some odd years ago, I did yeah. not get a lot of, I got enough money to buy an incubator, you know, <laughs> and that was about, about it. And the rest was up to me to bring in money and, and, and get a, equipment, but they gave me a technician, which they no longer do. Um, that was at a time when, when the state was funding uh, technician lines for education. And so we had, I had my own tech and I decided to put together a histology lab, uh, laboratory. And so I had friends and others send me tissues on amphibians, reptiles, uh, to uh, uh, determine a cause of, uh, of death. So I built up a histology lab in the late 70s to the 90s. And, um, and I was able then to identify certain topics such as like mycoplasmosis in tortoises, uh, which is a national and international issue or fibropapilloma in green turtles, another major issue, uh, inclusion body disease of snakes, uh, some of the drugs that we need to determine blood levels of uh, to, uh, to administer properly. And so we've done uh, studies with different antibiotics and ball pythons and alligators um, and iguanas and, and, so, uh, and crocodilians. And so we've, we've had a very, um, uh, an ability to get an, enough money to uh, pursue the, these these projects and some grants such as the ones we had with mycoplasma uh, turned out to be very large and others turn out to be and small and what I mean by small is a ten to twenty thousand dollars is really a small amount to maybe get started on something but you can't fund a graduate student on a salary of a graduate student, uh, especially if it has if a graduate student has a professional degree of like a DVM, uh, you're looking at $30,000 or 30 some odd thousand dollars just for, you know, uh, uh, for salary for a year. And that adds up to a quarter of a million dollars by the time you get done with buying things. So it's very, very expensive to do research properly. Many of us in this field piggyback the work, you know, some of the things that we can't get funded 
onto the things that we do get funded if they overlap. And, um, and, and, and so that's part of it, too, to see if you can get money in that then you can use to generate pilot data. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned some of the things you found in your uh, histology lab, including the, I think, with the turtles and tor uh, tortoises in particular. Uh, why exactly is that such a major national and international issue? Well, one is that there is uh, very, very good uh, field data uh, with turtles and tortoises uh, compared to snakes or even many lizards. Uh, the, uh, it's not perfect, but people can go out and do surveys. And, they, and, and the biologists, I, work, I, I still work with biologists that work with uh, desert tortoises in the Mojave Desert. And so um, it, it, um, uh, it, it, well, back up and uh, the, the, uh, the desert tortoise has now been divided up into several different species. It used to be yeah. just one. And, and now we have the, the, the Mojave, the Sonoran, there's one in Mexico, it's probably a second one in Mexico. And so we have several of, of what we'll call the desert tortoises and they're all different species. You know, they're different species uh, now. Uh, that animal got listed in 1991 um, as threatened uh, by uh, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service. And, and the reason for that was um, there was a disease and that was noted in 1988 by a graduate student at UCLA uh, who, who was working with desert tortoises. And he was looking at uh, um, control of water and water balance and and these animals, and he had uh, a number of uh, his tortoises were all radioed. So he had radios. He knew what burrows he was tracking them. And, and that in 1988, I believe it was in '88, they found a number of dead tortoises in the burrows, and they realized that this population had, had ill animals, animals with runny nose and pasty eyes. And that was 1989. We got a small grant uh, with the Bureau of Land Management to get some preliminary findings and on the with uh, the cause of this uh, disease uh, because now this animal had been listed as threatened which had a, a major effects on military bases and development and and um, in uh, in California and so it became a big issue uh, in uh, in Southern Cal where, where they're uh, where they're uh, found and then we recognized it in in, in the gopher tortoise in Florida uh, that was recognized well, probably when I first came, 77. I saw the first cases in 77 of uh, gopher tortoises, same thing, runny nose and, we, and, and losing weight. And we had very little to no money to work on. And we took it to a certain point, which was the histology of the disease, but could not really figure out beyond that. And so we just let it lie. Uh, for a period of time. So that's about 77, 78. Now we saw our first cases in gophers. And then in 89, I got involved with desert tortoises, but we had funding for desert tortoises before gopher tortoises. Hmm. So we wound up identifying a lot of uh, the disease and then developing diagnostic tests uh, for the desert tortoise that then we could apply to the gopher tortoise. And, and the gopher tortoise uh, money came, uh, Disney put in a very big... Uh, uh, grant uh, for working on uh, gopher tortoises because uh, they were they had animals tortoises on their property that were being translocated, and so um, 
we worked uh, uh, off of that funding for a, a number of years. And so all in all, and then I have colleagues in Europe that work with Herman's tortoises and Greek tortoises, and mycoplasma is a significant issue there and also affects translocation. Uh, there's also a herpes virus that's really problematic in Europe in, in, in tortoises, and it's also what there are different herpes, but there are some in tortoises, and then there are others that are in aquatic turtles, uh, such as emidine turtles. And, um, and so herpes, uh, another one, ronavirus, which is a, it's one of the few viruses that goes from, can go from fish to amphibians to reptiles. Uh, most of these viruses are very group specific, but the ronavirus, and it's really problematic on box turtles and, and, um, and certain tortoises across the eastern United States. It's a very bad virus. Uh, so um, anyhow, the, 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 the way we progressed is putting together the histology basically uh, is, is descriptive. You're looking at material under a microscope. And, and, and changes in, in, you know, in the tissues uh, can lead you uh, along one path of diagnosis or another, depending upon what you visually see. Uh, so histology is, 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 as part of pathology, that really is the starting, really, the point that, that really provides you information on where to go to next uh, to make a diagnosis. It's really an, a, a very essential uh, part of, of what we call diagnostics. And what we see today, uh, somewhat unfortunately, is that you know, molecular tools have become so popular now, and they've been around now for a while, such as PCR. And, 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 and those tools have been very, very powerful to uh, identify uh, specific uh, viruses or bacteria or fungi that we could not, uh, 15, 20 years ago, we could not identify, or there were misidentifications that were finding out a bunch of things, different microbes that were thought to be one thing now turn out to be something else uh, because the sequences are you know, so different. Uh, but when you've, when you've gone from histology to people that are really, oh, it's PCR and, they, and, and everything they do is based on PCR. And to me, that only gives you part of the picture. And yeah. so when you're working on, on ill animals, you want to try and take in as much as is economically feasible, you know, to do. Yeah. Um, and so that's how, how we, we, we uh, and, and also turtles and tortoises. So the database is real good because when a turtle or tortoise dies, uh, the shell is generally left behind for a period of time. And so you can go and, and count numbers and get an idea of what the mortality is in a population by counting shells. Um, most small uh, reptiles and most, like most lizards are, the vast majority of lizards I think are under 30 grams in, in body weight. I mean, okay. they're, they're really, the, we see the big ones for the most part in, in captivity. Uh, but uh, they're, they're, most of them are, are very, very small. If they die, they're gone within two or three days uh, from insects and ants and other things that are going to take them apart. They, they are broken down very quickly. And so that's why we don't see a lot of these smaller animals are just gone too fast. And you need to have a big die-off in a population like alligators where the animals are going to be intact for some period of time. 
Um, so, uh, so we're biased. We are biased. Yeah. Snakes don't generate, have not generated a lot of, both snakes and lizards have not generated that much in terms of funding to be able to really understand their disease process. Probably with us, snakes more than, than, uh, than, than lizards. But it's, it, it's a lot of work to get out and try to get your, someone, you know, to sell your project and, and, and your proposal is really the way you know your project is going to be sold and uh knowing how to write it up and and to have everything uh covered on it uh to be as thorough as possible yeah so uh you mentioned you did some uh work with alligator uh histology was there anything you found doing that oh yeah the, all these animals have some unique uh either anatomical or histological uh, features of, of different, uh, uh, organs. And, uh, and so the thing I, I find, I mean, as I've gone along, I, it's, it, it is never boring. There's always something new to learn, especially you work with a new species. Um, and, and you might be able to, uh, uh, take, uh, information from one and, and use it well in, in another. Uh, data that might, for instance, if I worked just on Amazon parrots and and there was a herpes virus in them and they had certain lesions. When when I saw Amazons come in dead with those kind of lesions, it it tells you pretty much what uh, what you have. Uh, the the problem with PCR is a lot of uh, bugs are naturally on us or in us. Yeah, and, uh, we may get a positive. But it may not necessarily be meaningful. Yeah, it could be more uh, correlation than causation. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and uh, or your tests, as we we've seen, sort of not not enough still. But how it it would become so too confusing. Diagnostics, those tests that uh, that are being done and i i always and i still don't know how standardized they are that's it's a big problem going from one lab to the next even with this molecular approach uh to uh get the really good standardization uh, and there are false positives and false negatives in every test and and the thing to realize is and we see this we've done this now with tortoises with mycoplasma because we have blood tests for that in, in desert and gopher tortoises and, and others. Uh, we have uh, tests for herpes. We have, I mean, we have the ability now to identify a lot of, uh, of different things and then to look at their relationship uh, uh, between them. And, um, and, and, and some turn out to be totally different than what they first thought they were to be. They were just misidentifications that were made because the, some of these, uh, especially if you get into fungi, which are a really complicated group of organisms, uh, there are so many that look alike that turn out to be very different. And molecularly, I mean, they're, they're just different. They just, we, we call some of those sibling species, like Drosophila, that they all look alike, but they have different genotypes. Yeah. Uh, so from the point of, uh... Uh, everyday her everyday uh reptile keepers uh was there any any sort of like uh 
diseases or treatment for diseases you managed to find in your time at Florida? Yeah. Uh, one that has been very intriguing, um, both in the pet trade and, and, and with conservation uh, groups uh, like the Colonial Conservancy and TSA, I mean, really excellent groups for uh, uh, establishing uh, breeding uh, uh, groups of, uh, of, of endangered uh, colonians. And, um, and so one, one particular pathogen which we identified in the, in the early 90s uh, was, um, it was uh, a coccidia. Uh, that is, in most coccidia, if we look at dogs and cats, the two major gen genera are Imeria and Isospora, and there's a, a number of others uh, that, that are, but those are two, two common ones in domestic uh, animals. And, 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 and so uh, we had, um, uh, we well have to. Uh, it, it's all have have a number of studies that sort of blend into uh, into one another. Uh, but the, it, most of the time, the coccidia are in the cytoplasm, and and in with Isospora and Imeria, and and we got this. Uh, uh, we got two radiated tortoises in with, with one had neurological disease, um, and the other was just uh, listless. And, um, and we, so we wound up, uh, we, they died. They had the, their, their kidneys were shot. They had elevated potassiums, the glucose, they had pancreatic disease. Their glucose should be normally about 60 to hundred. It was like 300. And, uh, and the, these animals were quite ill and they came out of a, there were two radiated tortoises and they came out of a collection, a breeding collection of radiated tortoises that had mortality over the years, but no one knew what was killing them. And when we worked up these two, we saw this organism within the nucleus of infected cells. It wasn't in the cytoplasm, but there was, there was something under the microscope observable that was in the nucleus that shouldn't be there. Hmm. And so the way we then proceed um, at that time and we still do, uh, is using electron microscopy. And so histology uh, is working on very thick slices of tissue compared to electron microscopy. And in, in, in histology, we're generally cutting at about seven microns, and a human red blood cell is about nine microns. And so that's what the, what the sections are, that's how thick uh, they are. When you get into Electron microscopy, it, it, it's 100,000 times thinner. Uh, wow. You know, special microtomes that are cutting these little, they're on a, a round copper grid that's smaller than a penny. And then you have a, a mesh copper, piece of mesh copper in this circular, you know, um, a holding device. And so you have this copper, and on that copper, you have maybe six sections of tissue. And each section may have 200 cells. And so you're cutting to, to go through a, a two centimeter square piece of paraffin would take you almost 200 years if you were working 40 hours a day cutting seven micron sections. Um, I mean, it, it's, or I'm, I'm sorry, uh, sections for EM, but it would, it, it, it just, 
is is hard work. So anyway, we we what we do is we look at the tissue, and and many there are many cases where I suspect there's something unusual going to happen, you know, occur. So I'm always thinking about saving, you know, always saving tissues, and being able to work up things further. You you always have to, I mean, plan it, plan ahead, and um, and so with this particular case, I didn't. I, I wasn't really sure what had any idea what what those two uh, uh, radiated tortoises had. And then we got the histology, and it showed it had these in, intranuclear structures. And so uh, I was able to take a piece of tissue out of the paraffin and submit it for their ways of doing of the taking out that tissue that you're cutting for histology. Well, you can take it and process it for electron microscopy. So we pick a section that had a lot of these bugs in it. And we did got on the EM scope, which on campus there there was one that uh, you have to pay for, uh, time wise and and uh, for processing and and so uh, we got on the scope, and uh, so like the first view, I saw these structures and they turn out to be a coccidia, and so there is a group of coccidia that are intranuclear, and and they and they were coming very uh, uh, harmful. I mean. There's quite a bit of mortality, and and different species of tortoise, mostly seen in tortoises, but I have seen it in a leaf turtle, a Malaysian, I think Malaysian leaf turtle, and uh, so on. It's uncommon in 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 aquatic turtles, uh, but it, it's been occasionally seen. But tortoises uh, have to, all of them, have to be considered uh, susceptible to infection and and pretty significant mortality. Um, Indian, Sri Lankan, Indian star tortoises, and I have several, uh, are very sensitive to that bug. If it's in the environment, they get it. Uh, they'll get a soft shell and, and, and they're going to die. And, um, and so this bug is scattered around the country in different breeding groups. Most people probably don't know what they have or if they have it because they don't want to know. A lot, unfortunately, the more you know, the more you wish you didn't know. Unfortunately, as you really get into things, you, you get to see how complicated they are. And there's no way to make them simple. They're, they're yeah. just complicated. And, uh, and, and, and that's, that's the reality of it. So w w when we get involved with breeders, and I am, a, I mean, I breed primarily dry marcon. But I also have uh, a lot of uh, uh, of other snakes, and I have uh, leopard tortoises. I've been breeding for thirty years, and my stars. And so I I've had the experience of a breed of breeding. Not in I have maybe one hundred and fifty animals or so. It's not a. And I go over friends' uh, businesses that have, you know, tens of thousands, <laughs> and and, the, and then then I come home and I don't feel so depressed about cleaning again. <laughs> you always want to have someone around that you go visit and can come home and feel better <laughs> yeah yeah you know? i feel that and uh and so uh with this uh the the acronym is called tink i just called it intranuclear coccidiosis inc for abbreviation then it got someone else added on testudinis intranuclear coccidiosis to make it distinct from anything else so it's called tink and some people feel it's the kiss of death if that's in your collection. And there are drugs that can be used, but it's, 
it is very laborious keeping up with treating a, a large group of animals. Yeah. It's just not easy. And especially with turtles and tortoises, we generally have to put what is called a pharyngostomy tube because you getting their mouth open is, is no guarantees on that. Yeah. And so we put what are called feeding tubes and we use them in dogs and cats and horses and other, I mean, they're, they're used widely and we've been using them in, in colonians for a long period of time. And so we put a, it's a, a red catheter and make a little slit in, in the neck area, right behind the mandible. Okay. And you putting a, uh, a red catheter that you use, some of them are urinary, but some of them for, are for nasogastric feeding and they're feeding, feeding tubes. And they're very smooth. And, and so you put that, push that into the pharynx and you have to bend it. And you're using a, what's called an otoscope or a light source you have to, you know, to be able yeah. to see when the catheter comes through, because it's easy for that thing to go under the tissue and not go into the middle of the esophagus, but get stuck in tissue. And then you're just putting medicants in, t you know, not in the right place. Yeah. And so, but once you get used to doing these work very well, and we've had giant tortoises on them and small tortoises on them, and we can give their meds and we can give them, feed them if they're not eating at all. And when they reach a point where they want to eat, they will eat with that tube in place. And, um, and I've had to remove some tubes. They get stuck or clogged until you get familiar with what can pass through that tube. Uh, when in doubt, you always have a similar size tube. And whatever gruel you're giving, you want to make sure it passes through that tube before you just stick it in the animal. Yeah. Yeah, I used to work at a pharmaceutical safety assessment laboratory. So the kind of familiar with uh cath cathetering uh yeah. dogs yeah so as soon as you said red catheter i knew exactly what you're talking about yeah yeah and and they work the feeding tubes are um they really work well and we've had so many animals turn around and, and uh once they're being given you know they you try to open up an animal's mouth and especially like a tortoise or a turtle uh it, it's not it, some will try to bite you and they're easy like snapping turtles yeah. But a lot of them were just going to pull in their shell or the, you, you're just not going to be able, I mean, to pull the head out, um, you have to really anesthetize these animals to get the tube, to get the feeding tube in. I mean, these are under gas anesthesia and we've done a lot of that. So it's, for, for us, that's, that's really not an, uh, an, an issue. Uh, but it makes uh, you know, such a, such a big difference. And, and a lot of things that we use, we've adapted from, domestic animal medicine and, you know, in zoo medicine and, and reptile medicine, we, we're adapting things used in other animals. And, um, and they, and, and it's, there, there's a finesse with all of these things. I mean, I, I can, you know, I start bleeding. I, I've bled a lot of desert tortoises out in the field uh, for blood studies and, and, um, and under pretty harsh environmental conditions in the Mojave desert in the summer. Yeah. And uh, you, you, you give them an injectable like ketamine to get biopsy. We, we were taking shell biopsies for a study. You give them ketamine, you, you have to stay over it. Now, it takes about 24 hours for an animal to really get back to normal, where in the wild you can re-release it. A very different than captivity. Yeah. And uh, so that's the big thing to be aware of, that 
every, every time we, we, we work with these animals, we the more you work, the, the more finesse you get. If, if I stop bleeding for a year, it may take me 20 animals before I get back in the groove of, of being able to do it. But if you're just doing it all the time, that gives you the best skills. Yeah. Um, so I personally, my favorite type of snakes are pythons and to keep a few pythons. Yeah. And right now, kind of the big scare among python keepers is a nidovirus. Right. Uh, you know anything about that? Yeah, I think we were the first group that I identified it. Um, there were three papers that came out on it uh, about maybe seven years ago or eight years ago. Uh, they all came out like a month apart or so. It was like this, I think so. Anyway, I had friends that, a uh, friend in Texas um, that sent me an electron, uh, a uh, electron photomicrograph of a, a virus they had seen in a, in a ball python and didn't know what, what it was. It wasn't from the lungs. And I didn't know what at the time. It was a, what we call filamentous. But there are some viruses that are round, like a lot of the pictures of COVID you see, the round yeah. with spikes coming off of it. And um, this was a filamentous. This was a very long virus that was, that was thin. But I, at that time, that must have been in the 90s, I, I just... Uh, didn't know and 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 to try to i mean molecular tools weren't the way they are today and was uh you, you get to see these new things but then you don't know what they really are and then about 2004 a friend in texas another in texas was working with a ball python breeder that was losing snakes with respiratory disease and um and then ulcers and erosions in the mouth and he sent me two cases and uh, when i worked them up I mean, they had a very significant pneumonia, and, and it looked, it had very um, somewhat overlapping uh, signs that we see with paramyxovirus, uh, which is another, I mean, virus that we've worked with uh, for a long time in snakes. And so we thought, well, maybe this was uh, some outbreak with a new strain of paramyxovirus. And so uh, once I got uh, on the EM scope uh, and got a picture, I found, I, took out a piece of the lung of the snake and worked it up by electron microscopy. And it turned out uh, to be loaded with this virus uh, that um, had both filamentous, they were filaments and round forms. They, they, you know, virus, when it replicates, can, when it, it goes into the cell and then comes back out of the cell, it generally gets part of the cell membrane when it exits the cell. It's called an envelope. It wraps around it. And, and some of these viruses are very elongate and have this elongated structure. And then others are just are round. And this had both forms around. And I didn't, at that point, I had some friends at uh, CDC uh, that I was trying to get uh, help on to do uh, sequencing. And then I met another uh, fellow who was at uh, University of California at San Francisco Medical Center, who was working in a, a top-notch infectious disease lab. And, uh, and which was doing mostly human diseases, but he was working on Bowen inclusion body disease. And so, and then I had a graduate student at the same time working on it. So they joined forces. And so at the time uh, that, you know, in IBD, we had a lot of material on that. But this ball python disease was just being, you know, recognized this is around 2004. And um, 
And so um, we eventually, with working with this group in California, because they had a high level lab that uh, we, the University of Florida has a centralized big facility, but it hadn't, that did sequencing, but it hadn't reached that state of getting this new latest uh, third generation, I mean, the sequencer that people were just starting to be able to use on unknown material of where you don't even know what the virus may be. And so this fellow, Mark Stenglin, got the, the um, material I sent him on the two ball python cases I had. And then some period of time, maybe the following year, I mean, he was moving from, from San Francisco, took a job at Colorado State. So his research got shut down for a period of time. And then he got established at Colorado State. And in, in about a year, I called him. And I said, hey, um, did you ever do anything on that, you know, on that ball python virus? And he said, oh, yeah, by the way, we did. We, we, you know, and this is the way it often goes when you're doing collaborative work. Some people will keep you up to date, you know, very much. And other people uh, don't necessarily. And so he, uh, he says, oh, yeah, yeah, it looks like it's, uh, and he give it, it's a nidovirus. And so um, he, uh, he said, and then at that time, it was only, there were only, I think, two isolates in fish. Of, of this particular, it, and it's under the coronavirus, the family the coronavirus is in is coronaviridae. Hmm. And the nidovirus are one clade that comes off of that. So there are a bunch of clades that come off of that central coronavirus. And, um, and so this turned out to, to be this, you know, brand new virus and had these filament. And, and this, someone in, I think it was, it was maybe the Netherlands, one of the zoos, they had an isolate from a reticulate, it had a reticulated python die. And then the, that one turned out, that was the first paper that came out like two weeks ahead of us. And, there were, and people knew from going to meetings, these infectious disease researchers you know, were sharing this information. So people knew that this new virus had been identified. And so everyone was hot to get a paper out on it. Yeah. And so right at the same time, I got a call from a big ball python. It was a tech technician for a ball python breeder in Ithaca, New York. And they had a couple of snakes go through Cornell and they just couldn't figure out, and they were ball pythons. And so, and she was describing to me the clinical signs of respiratory disease and, and, um, and these ulcerated lesions in the mouth. and. I said, oh, we've been working on this virus for, for a while now that we identified in ball pie. It took us a while to fi figure it out. And, and, uh, and so if you want, I'll set you up to send tissue to this fellow Mark Stenglin. And he, and he has the sequences now. And he can run, he can, he can determine uh, pretty quickly what you uh, have. And they decided not <laughs> to pursue with him. But they had some group at Columbia University uh, that was, they were doing some infectious disease work. So it wound up going through there. And it turns out the fellow at Columbia University was a competitor of the head of the lab in San Francisco. Yes, they were both hotshot infectious disease people that were doing primarily human related diseases. 
And so then it became this competition between them to, to get. And finally, the, the three papers came out within a month. And, uh, and ours was the only one that had electron microscopy, which to me, I always like to see what the organism looks like and not just get a sequence yeah. that you know, they, can, they can stick it into a phylogenetic tree. Yeah. So, that was a, so that was a very interesting uh, collaboration. But the, then at near the same time, there was someone in, in, uh, in, uh, in the veterinary clinic that had, had green tree pythons. And a couple of them came in, and tish, they, they died, and they got worked up. And so I, I asked to look at them. I was, when they came in, I was, not, I was on clinics. Like, out of 10 weeks, I'm on two weeks. And when I finished up working, I, every, within a 10-week block, I, I was on two weeks. Two other veterinarians were on four weeks each. And so I was off of clinics, but I, I happened to come in doing something and they had this talking about the green tree python. So I looked at the slides and I said, this looks exactly like the ball pythons. So I set up this person with Mark Stenglin at Colorado to get tissues. And, uh, and lo and behold, the, uh, uh, the green tree pythons um, uh, had uh, a very closely related, a closely related virus. And uh, now it's expanded. There's a, there's a pathologist at U of F, uh, his name is uh, it's Dr. Oz Ozbuff, has a lab laboratory that is primarily amphibian reptile pathology, and he has a student now working on Burmese pythons uh, in the Everglades, uh, looking and they have this and, and native snakes, these populations of nidovirus that that are just scattered about. And and they they have now one they think that the Burmese brought in uh, into the into populate because they now finding these snakes in colubrids and not just Burmese pythons they're finding the they're finding the virus now in more species than realized. There's at least one or two in lizards. There's one in uh, Australia and shingleback skinks uh, that have nidovirus that was identified and I think it was in wild. Skinks, but I have to look the paper up uh, again. But just a few years ago, and there was another Nido, uh, some other lizard uh, that it was it was found in, uh, maybe a monitor. Uh, so these, but and then trying to sort out when you have these populations of these viruses or whatever, as we see with COVID, there are some that cause more severe disease than others. Yeah, you know they're not. Also, we have these nidoviruses that probably are what we we would term use the term pathogenicity, the ability of the microbe or agent uh, to cause disease, and so uh, there are a lot of probably uh, non-pathogenic, you know, viruses that are out there, and 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 it's interesting that historically. Uh, some vaccine strains have been developed from non-pathogenic or mildly pathogenic, pathogenic uh, viruses, which uh, didn't, this is you know long ago, and we didn't have all of these uh, you know genetically engineered yeah. uh, material. But we're using you know like uh, duck egg uh, embryo for like rabies. Rabies virus was grown out in those eggs, and then the vaccine 
the uh, immunization was developed from that. And um, so some, some of these viruses that are within a group that are non-pathogenic can have value if they, if they tie up the receptors in you know, the general receptors for this group of viruses and they're non-pathogenic, it doesn't allow the pathogenic ones to attach. Yeah. And so the, 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 there is a competition that goes on between these different strains and receptors. And some of that can be useful and, you know, I mean, can be useful no matter what, but uh, that kind of competition uh, goes on. And we've, we've seen with mycoplasma and tortoises, we have at least two named organisms that are pathogenic in tortoises, then desert tortoises and gopher tortoises. We know that. There are many other isolates that have, I mean, that have been obtained and don't know how pathogenic they are. Because in order to do real pathogenic studies, you have to take the isolated virus and put it back in the host and the host that is not exposed. And that becomes the challenge in these studies to determine whether things are pathogenic or not. In humans, they're using, they're looking for models. They may get ferrets or because the coronavirus now is problematical in cats and in mink and now bears, a wide variety of animals now, uh, the virus has been cultured from or identified by PCR. Mm. And so we, we just don't know the range of, you know, what, what is, you know, the pathogenicity in these uh, reptile, you know, bugs, uh, because you have to challenge animals and to see what it does. And, you know, you know do a hundred animals with different isolates. It's just not feasible. Not feasible. Yeah. No. Um, so a slightly different tangent. Um, my favorite type of animals overall would be uh, crocodilians. Oh yeah. And, yeah. Big, uh, big croc guy. Um, and I've just heard this in passing over the years, but I keep on hearing that crocodilians are notoriously difficult to work on in a vet, veterinarily speaking. Um, is that true? And if so, what would be some of the reasons behind that? Like anything, if, if you don't have experience, uh, you, you can't just jump into uh, working on, on many of these animals uh, without at least some level of training or, or your ability to survive attacks <laughs> really, really well. Yeah. And, and, and so we've worked with St. Augustine Alligator Farm since I, I arrived in the late 70s. Uh, some of that time I was doing the primary veterinary work and now in the last 15, 20 years, other people have, are doing it within our ZooMed group. And we've worked on some of their big animals and some of their smaller, uh, a lot of their smaller animals. And I, I go out there occasionally, but to me, crocodilians, um, mid-sized crocodilians are to me fairly easy to, I mean, I, I just don't consider them that, that big of a, a problem. If you are working with people who know how to really work with them, yeah. how to rope them, how to get them out to make sure that like with the slender snout of crocs, they don't break their jaws. I mean, that has happened flipping. And, yeah. and so uh, we were, I, I went over to St. Augustine about six months ago. We, they were moving a big cataphractus. And so I just wanted to see uh, how it went. And they had it down pretty well. Even that, it was challenging getting it finally 
roped and and to the side, and they had it pulled out. Um, I don't know what the, I think it was being. They wanted ultrasound. It. It was one that was being bred, and they weren't getting any eggs out of it. And and they wanted to see if they can get uh, any any view of the ovaries, and it wound up being put on a big ladder. And that's what they use and boards on ladders work pretty well for some of these big animals to move around. Hmm. Um, it's um, and they just worked up the whole animal perfectly and not injured. And they they just the the people there know how to work with those. Now they have had problem people bitten. I mean that. And and so you you just let your guard down once, uh, and and it could be the difference between having your arm and not having your arm or your head. Yeah. Um, and so we have our methods, um, and and each of us may may vary a little bit different with what we feel comfortable. I haven't done any big crocs in the last ten ten years, other than watching other people uh, doing them. But I've done a number of uh, in in previous years. And the drugs, we have some pretty decent drugs out uh, that we can use at least initially by injection, or if the animal is roped, is like with alligators, many of the times we can just rope them and pull them out on an, uh, on a ladder and take them out. But we can do things IV uh, if we need to. They have a, a big supervertebral vessel right behind the occiput of the skull, right in the midline. Yeah. And um, and we bleed very commonly uh, from uh, from there, but they they're very dangerous animals. I mean, they're feeding machines. I mean, even a, a small one can can be a little nippy, and uh, and and then you work with certain ones like black caiman or or Cuban crocs, and that's a whole nother league. I mean, yeah. that, that's totally different. And then there you want to have a game plan and. And it's not so much the drugs, it's it's that manual restraint till you get it up on, say, a ladder or a board or whatever you're using uh, to get the animal restrained. And restraint, one has to be careful with that. They can develop myopathies. And so we want to be careful of how we how we you know hold them down to, to the board and, and making sure their 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 limbs are not in, in tetany. Uh, because uh, you, you, two or three days later, you can you can have muscle you can have this muscle fatigue and muscle damage. So there's there's a lot that goes into uh, uh, working with them. The uh, AZ uh, was uh, up to COVID had a croc a training course uh, that was like I think seven or eight days at St. Augustine Alligator Farm. And a combination of both lectures and labs. And the labs were there at the park or, you know, out in the field. And it's a very well uh, put together course. Uh, and Ken Philippe, who uh, he works both for the farm and he's in the Department of Biology at U of F, is the person that oversees it. Um, AZA now won't uh, 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 support the course uh, with because of COVID. Uh, yeah. That everyone taking it has to be immunized and and all and 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 the alligator farm doesn't have you know doesn't have that policy and in their insurance they they could not have uh, be forced to cover that uh, because then all their workers would be affected and so um, anyway the course is canceled until hopefully next year but it's excellent it's it's done very very well and uh, it's very very specific for crocodilians.
Yeah, I'd love to take that course sometime. Oh, it is. Um, but back to a difficulty with crocodilians yeah. and veterinary work, but what I heard specifically was that crocs are very sensitive to certain types of drugs, especially anesthetics. It can be kind of uh, tricky to get them right with that. Is that uh, true or is that has medicine kind of caught up with that moment? Yeah, I don't. I, it, it's it's all, again, in in the hands of the the person who is uh, who has the experience in doing the procedures and and getting and people that get trained uh, get trained properly. But for me, uh, overall, um, I I take it for granted just from what I'm used to have been used to working with and and the comfortability that I have. And there are by the from the time I retired in 2012, there are new drugs and 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 uh, approaches uh, for um, uh, you know working with these animals. And uh, and there were different ways to depending upon the nature of the animal and how easy or difficult it was to work with. Um, many years ago we started using succinylcholine because it was in the literature out of Australia and uh, of uh, translocating crocs there. And there are a couple of people that started using succinylcholine, which is a paralyzing agent. It, it has no analgesic properties at all. And that's, that's the problem. If you're doing an invasive procedure, it's inhumane to do it under yeah. succinylcholine. And so we took the uh, dose that was in the, in the literature and then we uh, used it uh, on some from, they did uh, saltwater crocs and I think freshwater, Johnston and I also, uh, in, in, in the work that was done in Australia. And then we used alligators. And uh, the, the, recovery, the recovery could be very prolonged, very prolonged. And again, you're not going to do an invasive procedure, and they're not going to re respire. You're going to have to breathe for them. Huh. It's paral it just totally paralyzes them. Just like when people... If you want to get really good muscle, they still, they use it in, in human medicine quite a bit to just paralyze. I mean, people are under an anesthetic, but they, you still may have muscle tone. And they if they need, say, for plastic surgery, they may wind up uh, just paralyzing you for, but then you have to be ventilated. Hmm. Uh, so that's the issue. And But to uh, extrapolate from one species to the other, I took doses. There was another uh, blocking agent neuromuscular blocking agent and they, and they work some are uh, presynaptic and some are postsynaptic in the, but there's one that's called galamine and it's in the literature. It's been used also for translocating crocodilians and we use it on alligators at the dose in the paper and they, they never recovered. And so I, I didn't pursue that. And I don't know uh, if that was uh, real typical, but I just did a few animals and then I didn't stop using very quickly. So sometimes extrapolation can be made, some not. We used it in large tortoises like Galops and Aldabras that can, to me, they, are, they can be more challenging in certain ways than a crocodile hmm. uh, because they pull in their shell and you're trying to uh, sedate them with injectables and they're very refractory to certain and they, it's, they're tough. They're tough. But there's a paper that just came out, and some of it may be from St. Aug animals from St. Augustine Alligator Farm also. But there's a paper that came out la about two months ago on anesthesia in giant tortoises. 
and it covers a lot of cases that um, many of which came through U University of Florida. So they have good dosages for those animals, and they really know how to sedate and and to anesthetize them. And the crocodilians, I don't. The, the difference is they're dangerous. Fair enough. So I think the big tortoises can be, especially if they're pulled in their shell. You, you could be spending the whole day trying to immobilize it. <laughs> and, and whereas a crocodilian, that's not going to be the issue. It's not going to be the issue. The issue is you, you don't want to pull it off of yourself. <laughs> the issue is trying to keep your hands. Yeah, we've had one time we had a, a, a common for crocs to eat foreign bodies. And one uh, at St. Augustine alligator farm was a little kid's teddy bear. And it was, uh, I think it was a Siamese croc, but it could have been some another uh, croc. But anyway, it, I, I was walking in the, just walking by radiology and I see a croc there. And I said, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm getting a picture of this. Uh, I think we believe this croc, and it was maybe five foot, but it had, it had its mouth Velcro taped and, yeah. and it was on a board and just sitting there. And so uh, they finally, they had it anesthetized down and it was in a pretty good state of anesthesia and they were trying to scope it. And I said, ah, oh, we just need someone with skinny hands. <laughs> and some student goes by that's had even skinnier hands than mine. Hey, come here, buddy. And we had like two by four in their mouth. Yeah. And he said, now we have to keep this motionless. And he, he was able to pull it out. <laughs> yeah. It was, it, was, it was quite amusing. Um, so you mentioned a while ago that you uh, breed quite a few uh, dry marcon. Yeah. Um, which uh, specific species uh, do you breed? I have uh, Texas. Uh, I have a nice group of of, of Texas. I have blacktails. Um, a group of those unicolor, which are as babies, they're indistinguishable from blacktails. But when they, as they mature, the tail gets lighter. Hmm. And whether they're really a distinct, so, you know, the subspecies is being done away with. And, and, yeah. and, and a lot of with taxonomy, in taxon vertebrate taxonomy. And a lot of the reptiles now are, it's just, uh, not, the subspecies is not being used. And uh, so whether the blacktails in unicolor are different subspecies or what, I, I bet there may be areas of where they hybridize, but the unicolor just are a nice brown color over the whole body. Um, whereas that black tail start out somewhat brown and then turn black. Uh, so I have those. Um, I have yellow tails. I have a, a, a number of uh, really yellow, yellow, yellow tails that are, that are really nice. And then I have a couple of rubidus. The West Coast, the uh, uh, dry marcon from Mexico, hmm. uh, Melanurus rubidus. It'll probably be its own species, rubidus. But some have a red tail, some don't. But they're the West Coast on the west side of uh, the, the Sierra, uh, the Sierras, um, uh, uh, going down towards the coast. Uh, and they come up to maybe 300 miles south of the border, 400 miles just south of this town, Guaymas, on, on, on the west coast of Mexico. And then they go all the way down on the Pacific. They're a Pacific animal. And I'll, I'll bet it they'll turn out to be something different than because all the other ones, the Melanoris, are all on the east uh, uh, Sierra Madres uh, uh, 
Occidental or Oriental on, on the east. And those go then go all the way down and around uh, the Isthmus of Tehuantepec in Mexico and then into Guatemala and Costa Rica, I mean, to Costa Rica, Panama, and then the Andes on the, on the east side of the Andes, then they become a whole other species, uh, which was, was Coriaceae. Um, and, um, and those are distinct from the, the ones on the other side. Uh, so, but they're very messy. And everyone that has dry mark on nose, I, it's, I just sometimes get very anxious. <laughs> yeah, very high metabolism animal. They, they, they are some really mad. They're beautiful animals, but that's the downside. Kenyan tan boas, on the other hand, <laughs> yeah. are not that you know exciting, but they have the driest species of any animal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, kind of interesting getting into dry markons uh, for a while now. Um, what do you what, whether or not to have any or not, but. Oh yeah, yeah. I haven't I, got any yet, but my friend buddy of mine has a few yellow tails. He's growing up. He might try breeding them next year. So yeah, they have a little disposition. Disposition very. I mean, they're they're a little bit more excitable than uh, like my Texas are. Are uh, they're pretty much sedentary. Uh, no, I don't think yeah, that's that's the type I really want to get the Texas indigo. I, yeah. I'm not exactly sure what the legalities are about state lines. I heard they originally got separated from Eastern, so they're allowed to be. Well, you can have more, a, but... you, they changed the rules in Texas, the regs, and, and you can have them, but you can't sell them. Huh. Uh, so you're allowed to, I don't know if it's one or two per family, or, but it, it, now they're legal to, to have. Um, and I, I breed the, the Texas for a number of years and I, two of them uh, went to a museum in Texas. So, I was able to send them uh, out of st uh, from out of state to, in Texas, but they they could. Oh no! Actually, they just got one uh, for display, and and that was it. And so you can own one there. Uh, the Eastern Indigo just became too much paperwork on that, and they can't, yeah. you can't you can't sell the babies if you're in Florida. Uh, yeah. You can you can use them for education, uh, but that that's about it. So that's why I went to tech. You know, and the Texas Indigos were legal in Florida. And I knew people breeding them. And so I got my group uh, that way. And most of the animals I have dry mark on all captive bred. I have uh, I have one yellowtail from Guiana uh, that is a big male that, that uh, I, I acquired a number of years ago. And uh, that's, I think, the only wild one. Wild dry mark on I have, and and they lay. I mean, some of like the Texas ladies, really big, robust eggs. And mm. they're, they're they're they are quite big. And then at least the black tails I have, and the unicolor and yellow tails, their egg is about three quarters the size of of, of uh, my Texas uh, females. Mm. And, and and they're big snakes. They just for. And I don't. I was going to ask some other people about that that are doing Texas and others, but why the Texas would have the biggest eggs of the group, and it may have to do with what I'm feeding and the way they're being kept. That that's not the way it is in the wild. But there's always oh, we got. I mean, the, when you're working with these animals, there's always something new to be found. It, it, it's just 
you what you you're only limited by your curiosity really and and with like with people wanting to go into graduate school or do graduate work i, I just say look in the literature and see who's publishing in the area that you're most interested in and and then those are the people to send letters to uh to ask if if there's any availability or any you know tas uh that yeah. might be open and so you want to find the people in the literature that are working uh with whatever it is you want to do and and uh, and that's the way you really want to learn you, it's learning by trial and error someone had to do it but yeah. boy if it can be passed along and to learn from someone else that's far better yeah uh Uh, anything else you want to talk about? Um, yeah, I mean the Petrade. Okay. Um, because I, I mean, I've been involved in in the in the Petrade as as a, as an owner since I've been five years old. The first reptiles I ever uh, had uh, were uh, Anolis carolinensis and 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 red-eared sliders. And that's because Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey, when they came to New York City and they had they had their performance in the garden, in Madison Square Garden, as you would walk in to go into the garden, uh, there there were barkers of different kinds set up selling things just outside of the you know in you know, the door to the inside, and I saw my first annals there, you know, just in a little cardboard box with cellophane. And you can see it, and those are my first reptiles, hmm. and and so and I and I've kept them continuously since about 1950, uh, in either small numbers or maybe just one or two, to you know larger uh, numbers. And I know a lot of people in the pet trade, and I know I'm I'm, I'm I go to primarily the Daytona Expo, uh, but there are, there are other expos here in Florida that I occasionally. Uh, go to and and sell whatever I'm breeding and I do my best to sell to people as far as I can tell that are knowledgeable and and there are there are certain snakes I have that are not for the average person out there yeah and um, and and over the years it, it has been you know gratifying to see a reduction in the number of wild animals that are being sold and I'm really against the the selling of wild animals yeah uh primarily uh, uh because they are less overall adaptive to uh to captive conditions and some are just so stressed out and with captive born at least you have an opportunity to work with them better and and for them to to have a little bit better uh you know di disposition and and the other thing with wild animals are the pathogens they're bringing in. Oh yeah, just like with the nidovirus. Now we see that we we have uh, what is called pathogen pollution. These are pathogens that are moving around the world, like COVID, uh, you know, within groups of animals that are being transported. And the nidoviruses, the paramyxoviruses, just all of them are almost now cosmopolitan around the world. 
just because people are sending out animals that have not been screened properly. And, and even with the, I was talking about false negatives and positives, you know, with testing, that every test, whether it's, you know, radiograph or whatever, every test has a certain percentage of positive, what are called false positives, false negatives. Testing, two in, important terms are specificity and, and, uh, and, and, and sensitivity. So specificity is, is, refers to specific, that the test is highly specific for this particular bug of uh, whatever. And, and, the, and the problem um, uh, with that is uh, that, uh, so you have this test that's highly specific and then the other feature of the test is sensitive. How sensitive uh, is it? W one is, can it, you know, if you look at sensitivity, it's the ability to pick up very small numbers of organisms. And, and, and that's sensitive. Specificity is you, you are picking up specifically what you want to look for, not something else that confuses it. And these two things, once, as, as you become more specific in a test, you lose sensitivity. It becomes yeah. more sensitive. And they work that way up and down. If you become more sensitive, you become less specific. You'll pick up some related organisms along with what you're looking at. So all of these disease, all these tests, people generally work out what is the specificity, what is and there are ways to do that. To say, okay, this has 97% sensitivity and 87% specificity and so you know and there are guidelines of what that should be for these kind of tests and and the public couldn't deal i mean dealing with this trying to get this out to the public is is very very difficult but they're all false positives and, and there are false negatives and and so uh we've worked on tests to make them as good as possible that they have as high a specificity and a sensitivity the best that we can do with both. Uh, that's that's basically what you want to achieve. And we've developed tests for, for desert gopher tortoises and for a number of pathogens. Sea turtles, we have a number of tests for uh, for sea turtles. Uh, snakes, uh, lizards, we have certain, I mean, so the, there's a good range of diagnostic tests uh, today. When I uh, started here, there were none. I mean, yes. zero, and that's 30 years. Uh, PCR was first papers I think came out on it was in like 85 and it was just revolutionary, revolutionary. And, um, and so people have to realize that uh, one, there are veterinarians who are trained uh, either formally or informally uh, by having their own reptiles as pets and, and they're scattered around the country, but there's a good, group of, of, of well-trained uh, veterinarians. And, and for me, uh, the best are the people that are also breeding or keeping uh, versus just saying in, in, in a practice situation. It's just, uh, there, there are too many things that you're gonna miss uh, that way. But there's an organization called uh, the American Association 
of amphibian and reptilian veterinarians uh, and or the association of reptilian and amphibian ARAV is the uh, is the short for it you can go on the web and look it up and and they can uh, uh, I think provide you people in wherever you live if there's anyone trained uh, to to work with these animals uh, but you know a lot of people hobbyists and breeders have seen uh, you know you know veterinarians as not knowing enough about the husbandry of their animal or or uh, you know which includes you know everything and from from the environment it's in to feed and all of that and and at one time yeah when I got out of vet school there there were only there was there was Dr. Fred Fry and that was it uh, pretty much uh, for someone going around giving conferences, talks on in conferences and lectures on amphibians and reptile uh, uh, medicine and, and, and disease. And he was it at that time. And this is back, say, 71 in the, in the very early 70s. And he continued and he's still alive today. He's he, uh, and he's done a lot. But then there were other like I came after him. I was in the na next age group. Uh, younger age group of uh, of students, and so by the time I got out, he was out eight years or nine years, and then I was in the next group, which were not many. <laughs> which even the next group, there were only a handful, and as it was in probably, you know, I'd be now guessing, but I would say in the '90s it really started taking off, and these expos started '91, and I thought reptile. Uh, pet trade was going to really decline over time. And then when those expos started, boy, that changed <laughs> everything in, in the pet trade with these, uh, with these animals. And there were more wild caught coming in at that time than now. But for me, I, the, the only value, the, the value, the major value for animals from the wild coming in for those people who know how to care for them properly is new genetic material. I've heard that and, and I agree with it up to a, a point, but yeah. not where that becomes sort of an excuse, you know, for selling or having wild animals. And I yeah. think there's enough being produced, I, I believe, and now PJAC probably has, has data on this, you know, the Pet Industry Joint Advisory Council. They have really good data on pet ownership in the country and reptile ownership and birds and er everything else. And, um, and so American ha households, I think, have stabilized somewhat now in, in, uh, with ownership. But certainly their popularity, uh, I think, took off with the, with the expos, really uh, changed. And then with you know, kingsnake.com and Foreign Classified and all these other uh you know uh, uh websites to find and order the animal you always wanted to have yeah and there's there's a there's a lot out there but i i just see over time the wild caught animals you know disappearing uh from the pet trade and uh i'm not a hard advocate but that's my own personal uh view on it and there are groups uh, that are very against exotic animal ownership. I don't know if you've seen that most recent 
uh, is like an amendment to the Stacy. Yeah, uh, I've heard about that from Youth Ark and all that. Oh, it's I, I read the bill. Uh, the bill is online. It's I think forty two fifty one something HR forty two or forty seven fifty one forty forty seven maybe fifty one. It's like the American Compete Sack or something like that. Yes, yes, and and the way the wording is, they could use that to keep just about. Now this is this is not interstate. This I don't believe. I think it's all from overseas. It's it's controlling all of the, I mean the import, making it basically impossible to bring anything in, without it going on what's called a white list. Yeah, it's, it's trying to prove the negative, and 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 that they say because of the injurious, you know, section of the Stacey Act of injurious species, we are not a- asking you to prove that this is pot. We're you're. You have to prove it is negative, that it is not going, and you can't prove a negative like that. Yeah, and 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 so it it causes everyone to shut down everything because there are only a handful of species that have really been determined to be injurious, and so everyone that wants an, another species now would have to go through the same, uh, you know, steps, and it's been used now for. Uh, with with the 10 big constrictors you know and it's it's um so it it passed the house and it's in the senate and they're asking a friend sent me a, a letter around uh two days ago of signing it to, to sign in to at least uh you know support the the, the cur- current uh situation which is still bringing in animals from overseas the the, the concern Concern another concern of animals being shipped around or pathogens, as we meant, bugs that are, are just moved around the planet now. And, yeah. and and just like you have injurious reptiles, you have all the injurious pests that they're you know that are on them yeah. or in them. And 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 it's insurmountable almost to test for everything that is that bad. Now I have friends that say, hey, Burmese pythons. It's just going to become natural. They're just natural now. They've made it here. They're, it's all part of uh, their uh, ability uh, to move around the world, and and it's it's either live with it or not. You know, that's that's I, I in some ways I yeah I think getting rid of Burmese is going to be very very difficult, very difficult. Yeah, and you have. Uh, there's the book that just came out on the invasive, injurious amphibians and reptiles of Florida. Just came out. I got my copy a couple of days ago, hmm. and that list keeps growing. Yeah, it keeps growing. It, 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 it's um, and that's just the way it is. And I'm not. I don't want to add to it, but I don't think you're going to be able to subtract from it very well. Look at the picture. Look at yeah. the picture. Tegus are a neat lizard. I had my first tegu when I was like ten or twelve. Yeah, it was a big black and white tegu speck, and it was tame as anything from the very beginning. And they are neat lizards, but they're not good, <laughs> you know, for native wildlife. Yeah, good in the good as being a pet. Yes, not so good being in your uh, out in the woods in no, your backyard. No, no, terrible, terrible. That's terrible. You know, but. 
that's how it goes. I, I think that um, I, I see an, I see these animals remaining as pets for at least a number of generations. I, who could look down 500 years and even know yeah. what's going to happen 500 years from now? But I, I, I think that um, the, the the economy is starting to play uh, some uh, have the inflation and the cost of food. And, and, and the cost of rodents, uh, those prices are going up as fast as gasoline is. Yeah. And, and, you know, and how that influences, you know, what people are keeping, especially big snakes. Right? And uh, they're just really cost. A carnivore, a big carnivore is a very costly animal. Uh, is, a, herb yeah. a herbivore is much cheaper. <laughs> just, so it's the python go iguana. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there is some nice herbivorous things. Um, and I, I hope it continues. That's what got me into my field was interest in rept insects and reptiles. I, I do a fair amount of black lighting in this. I still have an interest in insects. And I, I like I have friends out west that do a lot of black lighting. And I enjoy yeah. getting together with them uh, and do that. And so that interest uh, can make a big difference for certain kids of where they're going to go and what they're going to do. And, and parents, if they can encourage their kids, you know, they see them interested in something, encourage them. Encour don't, you know, limit, you know, within, you know, certain limits, but don't, don't exclude, you know, if they're, they have that interest, you want to just nurture it and, yeah. uh, and, and feed it as much as you can. And my, I was like, I had two, I had parents that knew nothing about these animals. And I bought all kinds of things and brought them. I had, I had monkeys for a while and, and my mother put up with, with a lot and I had escapees. I, I had a, a gopher snake I had out on a chair, uh, cleaning out its tank. And then the mailman ringed the bell and I thought I could run down and get the mail and the snake would sit, well, it was gone and with, within two minutes. And and two months later, I was playing handball in, in, in the neighborhood park, and my mother comes running to the park saying she thinks she found the gopher snake. She found it was sprawling in the couch while she was sitting on it watching TV. And she swore she the gopher snake is in the couch. And so I, yeah, I had to stop playing handball, and I was, I was a fairly good player, and I was in with a group of friends, and I, I said, I'm sorry, i got to go. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to take my turn, and then they just sort of watching me, and I go run, I go home with my mother, and there's the gopher snake, and I had, had to pull out the the metal screening that holds the insulation, yeah, under the couch, and it was just, and it was like a paper, you know, some kind of paper covering the insulation too, and and there was the gopher snake, it was in the couch, and then my mom didn't have me ask me to get rid of it or anything, she just said keep it. You know, and it's cage. <laughs> yeah. And I, I had a corn snake that got out. And while I wasn't watching, it went into a brand new stove. My mother oh, bought yeah. There were holes at the top that for for airing the, the stove. And it got, I just saw its tail going in. And I dismantled that. I finally got that. It was just a pile of pieces. <laughs> it had four pilot lights. And then everything else was on the ground. And my mother just walks in the door. And this is her. She had years to save to get this stove. <laughs> it got repaired. <laughs> but she was a good, she really was, um, 
and my father too. I mean, they were both very encouraging. They were, and uh, but they knew nothing about these. They they just liked animals. They did. They have. They had. We had dogs and fish, and we had a parakeet as a, as a kid, and they liked animals. But when I started bringing home monkeys, that, <laughs> that was that was the limit. Yeah. So that's that, and I, I'm just feel lucky, fortunate to be able to continue to work with these animals to keep them, to be able to uh, select out those animals that I really was interested in that I'd like to to uh, to breed, to be able to to take care of health issues of my own animals. I I, I do enjoy the the ability to 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 uh, do that. And that was a major reason I went into it. my research animals ill, dying, and no help. And uh, so whatever I can do uh, to, I, I've encouraged a number of students in high school and undergraduate school interested in reptiles are going into veterinary medicine and have, and have continued with their interest in reptiles. So there are more of those people out there and the more I can still excite or teach um, I will. I'm, in a couple of weeks, I'm going down to Belize with uh, a friend, Dave Rostel, who is a reproductive physiologist, very, very good at laparoscopic sexing and um, of, of turtles. And they have a conservation program at this, it's a conservation organization called Be Free. Um, it's, it's a Belize ecology uh, you know, research uh, uh, organization. And um, and they are breeding this uh, endangered turtle called the Hecate, uh, which is only found in, in Belize, Honduras, Guatemala. Uh, the genus is Dermatemis, and it's the only member of its genus and the only member of its family. And so we're going down there to laparoscopically sex uh, Hecates uh, to determine what incubation temperature results in males and what results in females. And the Hecate is one of two turtles in the world that lays its eggs underwater. It'll excavate something underwater and deposit its eggs. And then when you get, and there's a, a, a side neck in Australia, I think that does that too. And when the water gets down to a certain, you know, it'll lay in the rainy season and everything is just wet. And then when it gets down to start dry season, starts drying out, then they're almost in a, uh, you know, suspended state for a period of time, just like the the tortoises that are you know cooled, and well, there are aquatic turtles that you cool down before you breed them. Uh, so um, they're a very neat species, and and if you want, Bee Free is in southern Belize, has a, a extensive. It's surrounded by the extensive cloud forests and 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 tropical rainforests. And it is uh, just a, a wonderful place to go, if, if, especially if you know someone who can take you around. Yeah. It's a, it's a neat country. So, anyway, it keeps me excited. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's, it's really weird to have an aquatic egg-laying turtle like that. Yeah. It's there. You look at reproduction, but if you look at reproduction, amphibians have to me at least, have almost any everything beat in the diversity of reproductive strategies. Yeah. I mean, reptiles fall into you know, two broad groups, egg layers and live bearers. And, and, and then 
there, there is differences in there. But when you go into amphibians and you start looking at these marsupial frogs, this mouth breeding frog, I mean, things that carry an egg up into a bromeliad, you know, yeah. 20 feet off the ground. Glass yeah. frogs and all that. Yeah, they're just, uh, they just, I, I heard, uh, I heard a couple of lectures on amphibian reproduction that are just outstanding that uh, I don't realize how diverse they are. So. And I've I've had some I have some amphibians but not uh, over time as as much as my my reptiles. Well, uh, okay. covered a lot. I know I've gone on different tangents, but yeah. I hope there's co some coherency. Yeah. It's with with it's really been it's really been quite a learning experience for me. So I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Okay, that's great. I I. I, that makes me. That always makes me feel good, because uh, really, a lot of what I was trained for is, t I mean, teaching and passing along information. Yeah. Anything else needed at all, or are there any? If there are any questions, uh, I'm on Facebook, and so people can uh, look me up there and uh, you know, send me a, anything from in Messenger. Well. Thank okay. you for coming on the show. All right. Thank you for inviting me. It's my, been my pleasure. I hope you survived the winter temperatures there. It's starting to warm up a little bit. Oh, good, Just good. a little bit. So, good. Well, good luck. Thank you. All right. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye-bye.